Hello, and welcome back to Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion. This week, we welcome Dr. Christopher Berry to the show. He is an astrophysicist who recently helped discover the first intermediate mass black hole ever seen by astronomers. We're also going to take a look at an ancient galaxy that looks normal and talk about why that's so unusual. We learn of an active environment around the asteroid Binu, and we study how our ideas of dark matter may change due to an unexpected bending of light. The ancient galaxy SPT 0418-47 was recently imaged by astronomers at the South Pole Telescope and ALMA, revealing the family of stars as a fairly normal disc-shaped galaxy. This is unusual since galaxies in the ancient universe were thought to be chaotic. Roughly 12 billion light-years from Earth, galaxies at this distance cannot be directly imaged. Astronomers used a gravitational lens, a type of natural telescope, to image this distant body. This finding shows ancient galaxies may have morphed into modern forms more rapidly than previously believed. The OSIRIS-REx spacecraft recently observed small pebbles flying off the asteroid Bingo. Researchers first saw these fragments last year when the robotic observatory arrived at the asteroid. A new study reveals the release of pebbles is driven by uneven heating of the body, as well as micrometeorites striking the surface of Bennu. This discovery reveals at least some asteroids are lively, active bodies. Observations of 11 clusters of galaxies reveal dark matter, which makes up the vast majority of matter in the universe, warps light far more than expected. Observations show the path of light traveling near distant clusters of galaxies is warped to a degree 10 times greater than theoretical models predict. This suggests that Virtual models and simulations exploring dark matter may need to be revised, potentially altering our notions of this mysterious something that permeates the universe. This week, we are joined by Dr. Christopher Berry, astrophysicist at Northwestern University and the University of Glasgow. This week on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, we are joined by Dr. Christopher Berry. He is an astrophysicist at Northwestern University and the University of Glasgow. He recently did a study which found the first intermediate mass black holes ever seen by astronomers. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Oh, thank you. 
So let's start with the basics. Um, what are intermediate mass black holes and what makes them so darn interesting? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, so black holes, we uh, up till now, uh, we knew they came in, in two sizes, really. We had the stellar mass black holes, which are around about five times the mass of our sun up to 100 solar masses of the conventional definition. Uh, and these are stars that we think could have formed from star. Uh, so these are black holes which could have formed from stars collapsing down at the end of their lives. You have stars use up all their nuclear fuel, uh, their cores no longer can uh, resist the forces of gravity and you have them collapsing down and forming that way. We also know of a much larger black hole population. These we call massive black holes or supermassive black holes. And these are formed by, well, we're not entirely sure, but where they're found in the centers of galaxies. And we think their evolution, how they grow is linked to the uh, evolution of galaxies because we see bigger black holes in, in bigger galaxies. So it kind of makes sense that they're, they're linked. Our own Milky Way has a, a black hole which is about four million times the mass of our sun in its center, which is quite a moderate um, black hole. We know them up to tens of billions of solar masses. Now, we know these black holes in the centers of the galaxies, uh, these massive black holes exist. Uh, we don't know exactly where they come from. And if it's possible that you start with a stellar mass black hole and you grow it up to a supermassive black hole. To really identify that, we needed to see the things in the middle, the intermediate mass black holes, which are uh, defined to be between 100 times the mass of our sun up to about 10,000 times the mass of our sun. So we've um, been hunting for these um, black holes as an astronomical community uh, for quite a while now. And there have been a number of tantalizing hints that they do exist. There have been some observations of X-ray sources, which are very luminous, which could maybe be explained because there's an intermediate mass black hole swallowing up gas. We've looked at um, dynamics of globular clusters big balls of stars and seeing the way the stars orbit and maybe that could be explained by having an intermediate mass black hole at the center but none of these observations uh, was definitive it, it was evidence but it could maybe be interpreted in a different way what uh, we have now achieved with the observation uh, that we we have made recently in uh, with using gravitational waves is uh, a conclusive really observation of intermediate mass black holes. So we now know that they exist, that there are at least uh, a few black holes above the 100 solar mass threshold. What we still don't know if that continues all the way up to tens of thousands of, of solar masses, um, but it will hopefully inspire people to go out and be more confident in their searches to, uh, for intermediate mass black holes. Now we know there are at least some to find. You're listening to Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, a podcast focused on making science accessible to everyone, including weekly interviews with groundbreaking scientists. We depend on support from fans like you, helping us bring science news and education directly to listeners around the globe. Visit us at thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support for information on subscriptions and other ways you can help support this program. Subscriptions start at just 99 cents a month. Show your love of astronomy and space exploration by visiting thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support today.
So what makes intermediate mass black holes so difficult to find? Uh, it's really that black holes in general are difficult to find. That um, most of astronomy is based on electromagnetic observations, looking at some form of light, whether that's visible light, x-rays, radio waves. And black holes are very difficult to observe electromagnetically. This is because they are black, they don't emit light. You can only see that they're there by their effect on their surroundings. So if they have uh, an accretion disk, a big um, body of gas swirling around, getting hot as it gets sucked into the black hole, we can maybe see that disk. So that's how we've observed a lot of the stellar mass black holes. So they have an accretion disk. And indeed, some of the supermassive black holes, they um, have, uh, have accretion disk and they these power big jets of material being blasted out with uh, uh, quasars. So we've seen these, but the black holes on their own are very difficult to see. And if they're not surrounded by material that are sucking up, or if it's not immediately obvious that there's something orbiting around them, that's, that's difficult. So intermediate mass black holes, um, we just uh, haven't found any systems where we conclusively have uh, something around them to, to see. What is new now uh, is observations with gravitational waves instead of electromagnetic waves. Now, gravitational waves are sourced whenever you have something massive moving quickly. Uh, so if you have a couple of black holes orbiting around each other merging together, that is absolutely the perfect gravitational wave source. But gravitational waves made for looking at black holes. Uh, we only started really making gravitational wave observations five years ago, so September 14th, um, 2015, we made our very first gravitational wave detection. That was two black holes merging together. Uh, we've now made many more. Our detectors are getting more sensitive so they can see sources farther away. And it's this which has really enabled this most recent detection of two big black holes coming together, merging. And the final black hole they made was about 142 times the mass of our sun. So quite clearly an intermediate mass black hole. It's fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about how these gravitational wave detectors work and how we figure out what's going on out there through them? Absolutely. So I should say I'm uh, someone involved in the, the data analysis of gravitational waves. They don't let me near the detectors, which is <laughs> a very good thing. I'm not, I'm not an experimentalist. <laughs> gravitational waves are um, stretches and squeezes of space-time. So uh, in Einstein theory of general relativity, which is our best understanding of gravity, gravity is that's the bending of space and time. And when you have two objects moving around, say, or two black holes orbiting around each other, it takes a bit of time for space time to adjust itself due to the source moving. So you get little, little ripples because this bit of space time needs to turn a bit of space time next to it. Ah, we need to change our curvature slightly. What this means is we get gravitational waves moving out, which is if you had a little circle, that would get stretched and squeezed as a gravitational wave passed. So the way to measure a gravitational wave is to very carefully uh, measure the distance between two points. Um, or in effect, what we do is we have uh, giant lasers, so the LIGO detectors in the United States and the Virgo detector in Italy. Um, we have um, laser interferometers, so we have four kilometer long arms for the LIGO detectors, three kilometer long arms for Virgo in an owl shape. We bounce lasers up and down and basically compare how long it takes for the laser light to go up one arm compared and back down compared to the other. 
and we have mirrors at the end which are very carefully installed such that there are no forces acting on them. So that when a gravitational wave passes, one arm will get a bit shorter, the other will get a bit longer, and we measure that displacement. And that's how we know there's a gravitational wave there. Now, I should say this is, I think, a remarkable measurement. Um, yeah. I'm in complete awe of what our experimentalists have managed to do here. The, the stretching and squeezing we're measuring is something like one part in 10 to the 21 for the loudest signals. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> put that in context, that is the same as measuring the distance between the Earth and the Sun uh, to the diameter of one hydrogen atom, or the distance from here to Alpha Centauri to the width of a human hair. In our LIGO detectors, it works out to measuring these displacements to uh, the fraction of a size of a, a proton. So there are many uh, cunning techniques inside our detectors which allow us to uh, zoom in on these tiny displacements. Now, the, the pattern of stretching and squeezing we see tells us what the source is. So if you have a, a binary system, two objects orbiting each other, they orbit around and they emit a gravitational wave signal um, which is uh, at a frequency which is determined by the orbital frequencies. It's, roughly, it's twice the orbital frequency for a circular binary. As the binary emits gravitational waves, the gravitational waves take away energy and angular momentum, so the orbit shrinks and it speeds up and it emits more and more and you get a runaway and then you get a merger, you form a new black hole that wobbles around for a bit, quietens down. So the gravitational wave signal we see starts as a low frequency, gets louder and faster, uh, hits a peak and then quietens down in what we call the, the ring down of the signal. And by measuring this frequency, the frequency evolution, uh, the amplitude of the signal, we can tell the masses of the, the two objects, uh, how far away the source is, and some extra information if we have a, a good signal about um, what we call the spins of the, the black holes. This is how they, they um, the space-time is sort of swirling around them. Um, and that's useful information telling us about how the black holes formed. Now, uh, what is um, perhaps key for uh, talking about this signal, which is very high mass, that the point at which your two black holes merge and form the final black hole depends on the, the mass. More massive black holes are bigger. So you have, you know, if you have, uh, if you're forming a bigger black hole, you're merging at a, and when your two objects are physically further apart. So uh, if you measure in kilometers how far apart they are, that's wider, which corresponds to a slower orbital frequency. So it's a lower gravitational wave frequency that you measure. So for this signal, it was um, we saw quite a short signal because our detectors are only sensitive above about 10 hertz and this merged around about 60 hertz. So it didn't move, uh, had very far to move in, in frequency. So it's quite a short signal, very much a sort of thump in our detectors, um, which is um, distinct from when we have lower mass sources. Um, they ch uh, continue up to higher frequencies. So they get a nice chirp from low frequencies up to a few hundred hertz, say. Uh, the longer the signal, normally the more information we get. So those are nice. The shorter signals are a bit easier for us to analyze, so I won't complain uh, when we get some of those. As you said, this is a you know remarkable, remarkable signal, and you know, um, and it, you know as you said, it, this is it basically consisted of you know four little wiggles over the course of less than a tenth of a second. 
Um, and as it seems, I mean, I, th I would think for a lay person, it's hard for them to see how you got so much information out of so little data. Can you talk about, you know, your process for doing that and how, uh, and how you're sure about what you found? Yes, so this is a good question. And in fact, one which took us within the, the LIGO and Virgo collaboration a long time to figure out. Because as you say, this signal was, was very short. It was only a few cycles. And so everything I've said is assuming it's the sources of binary black hole, two black holes coming together and merging, which we think is the most likely explanation because we've seen many of these sources before. We know they are out there and we have good predictions for what they look like. Uh, so we, we can compare our, our predictions for what these signals should look like to the data. And we find it's a, it's a reasonable fit. It, it looks, looks like we have a good match. Uh, we can get consistent results without anything suspicious being left over really. However, it is not necessarily the only explanation. And when we have such a short signal, it's quite easy to potentially fit other sources to the, the data. So there are a range of different uh, hypotheses which we considered and we looked at, um, going from things which are perhaps not, uh, not necessarily as um, concrete in us having seen them before out to being very speculative. So one of the first variations we considered was instead of having a binary, which is pretty much on a circular orbit, we have a very eccentric encounter. So black holes coming in and merging that way. And that fits the data very well. So that could be um, an alternative explanation. You have still two black holes coming together and merging, just the properties would be slightly different. We'd still have an intermediate mass black hole, um, but maybe the, the distance would work out slightly differently. Mm. That seems to fit quite well. Uh, we think it's quite improbable that you would have an eccentric binary. Um, just we, th there would be a few out there, but they should be rarer than the circular ones. So that seems less likely. Uh, however, we can't rule it out. And indeed, um, that might be the actual explanation. As we get more observations, hopefully we can see if we've maybe misunderstood how, what the distribution of orbits are, and maybe there's some particular way which um, creates black holes on sort of collision courses. Uh, more speculatively, we considered um, cosmic strings. Now, I would love it if cosmic strings turned out to be a thing, and we had discovered them in gravitational waves. Uh, cosmic strings are um, big um, yeah, defects in the universe, really little um, bands, I guess, created in the very early universe, which have been stretched out as the universe expanded, which have some uh, density associated with them. And we don't know if they exist. We have no observational evidence to say that they exist. Um, but we can calculate what gravitational waves made by them look like. If you get a little kink in your cosmic string and that straightens itself out and you have some wibbling around or a cusp that travels along the gravitational wave, um, along the cosmic string, we, we know what that looks like. And we can compare that um, model to our data. It doesn't fit as well as the, the, the two black holes coming together, unfortunately. Um, so uh, even if we knew cosmic strings were a thing and they merged all the time, as we have been seeing with binary black holes, we'd still put our money on the binary black hole, which is you know, 
a little disappointing for finding new physics, but it means we're still left with this very exciting black hole, so no complaints there. Hi there, this is James Maynard from the Cosmic Companion. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, our podcast is put out through Anchor FM. If you've ever wanted to have to your own podcast, they're a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, Anchor gives you a chance to uh, put get your podcast together with all the tools in one place. And um, you can do it from your phone or a computer. And they're going to help you get distributed out to all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it. And so best of all, Anchor's all free. How cool, huh? Anyway, if you want to check it out, go download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Clear skies. All right, that's great. And um, of course, you know, the black holes, which were the progenitors of this merger, uh, were measured to be around 66 and 85 solar masses. And of course, when they combined, they were thought to uh, form a black hole with a mass around 120 solar masses, if I'm correct. 140. 140, okay, thank you. And um, so can you tell us a little bit, I mean, even the larger of the um, black holes, this started with the, 80, the one with 85 solar masses, was thought to... Um, was in a range of masses that was thought to be improbable for black holes. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and how this thing could have formed? Yes, so this is actually what I'm most excited about from this discovery. Uh, we, we have the masses of the individual black holes and the mass of the black hole you form when the star collapses is really set by the, the mass of the star you started out with. Roughly, the bigger the star you start out with, the bigger the black hole. Not all the mass of your um, star ends up in your black hole because as a star lives through its life, it goes through various phases of ejecting mass and uh, particularly when it comes to the end of its life and it, say the core collapses down, but the outer layers may get blasted out. Now, when you get to the range of masses where you would expect the black holes to start collapsing down uh, to 55, say, solar masses up to about 130 solar masses, so one solar mass being the mass of our sun. Uh, we think that something uh, should happen in the core of the star. They encounter um, what we call a pair instability. Basically, um, you have your, your star, which is being kept up by the, the pressure of all the light inside it. And as it's so hot, it's emitting so much light, that's, that's what keeps it support. If it gets hot enough, this light can start creating um, electron and positron, that's anti-electron pairs. So you have uh, bits of light being converted to particles. That means you don't have the light supporting your star, so it will start to collapse down. As it collapses down, your star's core rapidly heats up and gets denser. That leads to explosive nuclear reactions, explosive burning of carbon and oxygen. Thing. And basically the star will blow itself apart completely. It's not, uh, not just blast off the outer layers and the core will collapse down, but the entire thing will be disrupted and there'll be nothing left behind. So the predictions are there should be a gap in the masses of black holes due to pair instability, which is this particular 
supernova mechanism. So to have this black hole, which is 85 times the mass of our sun, which is pretty much exactly in this mass gap, makes us go, hmm, we, we can't have this forming directly from a star. That is, if our understanding of the physics of how stars live um, is correct. So we need some other explanation. Now, there have been a number of scenarios suggested for this. So one is uh, this black hole itself could have formed from two smaller black holes merging. We know that black holes merge together, form bigger black holes. So that seems plausible. The difficult thing is starting off with one binary, two black holes coming together and merging, and then this remnant black hole finding a new partner to form a binary. That will only happen if this black hole is somewhere where there are lots of other black holes around, so in a globular cluster or a nuclear star cluster, so a region where this is very dense, has lots of stars and black holes in it. Uh, another scenario which is similar is perhaps if we merged two stars together. So this would again need to happen somewhere where there are lots of stars and black holes around. And the idea here is that parent stability sets in when the core of your star gets above a certain mass. But if you started with a star with a smaller core, merge on another star, you're left with a bigger star with an undersized core. So it could escape the, the parent stability. And when it collapses down, all the outer layers go on and gives you an extra big black hole. That's, that's very uncertain because we don't really know what happens when you splosh together two stars. Another scenario is that maybe you have um, black holes embedded in a disk around a supermassive black hole. So an accretion disk, lots and lots of gas around, and you can feed up your black holes by accretion. And maybe also, because it's um, so dense, have hierarchical mergers, these um, two black holes merging to one black hole and then that going on to merge again. So there, those are a few scenarios which have been suggested. Um, with only one observation, we can't really say for certain yet what it could be. Um, but each one of these, if we can get more observations and figure out what's going on, will tell us about the particular bit of physics that goes into forming them. So how globular clusters, and nuclear star clusters behave, how stars behave when you merge them together. So it's, it's extremely exciting observation from that point of view. It's fabulous. So we have a uh, listener question. Uh, Terry from Haverhill, Massachusetts would uh, like to know how is it that eight solar masses of material got converted entirely into gravitational waves? Yeah, so this is a, a good question. So if you, if you add together the masses we said for the, the two initial black holes and the final black hole, you'll find that um, yeah, around about eight solar masses are missing. And that's the energy which is carried away by the, the gravitational waves. So we have um, equals mc squared from Einstein's uh, relativity. Energy, mass are basically the same thing. So when we say eight solar masses, we mean the equivalent of amount of energy. So that's all the energy which is radiated away by gravitational waves. Um, and that is a huge amount of energy. Right? That's, uh, I think we can claim that this is the, the large, the, the most energetic um, explosion, if you like, we've seen since the Big Bang, um, potentially. Um, and yeah, it's it, the the more massive the black holes coming together, merging, the more energy is released. It's 
simple as that really. Um, the, the fact that it's such a phenomenal amount of energy really just comes down to the fact that um, space-time is really hard to bend. It's really stiff. So um, you need to put a lot of energy into it to create the gravitational wave. And um, so gravitational waves do carry a lot of energy. Um, so uh, big black holes colliding near the speed of light, it, it gives you a lot of energy to pump into the gravitational waves, they carry it away. Um, and that's, that's why it was such a, a loud signal um, at the source, because by the time it's traveled all the way across the universe to us, it's quite a small signal. Um, so it's still quite hard to measure, even though it was initially extremely bright. Finally, just thinking about the future of gravitational astronomy and black hole studies, what sort of technologies and other studies could be done um, to both study this object as well as find other intermediate mass black holes around the cosmos? So, um, at the moment, our LIGO and Virgo detectors are offline, so we can um, work on them and make them more sensitive. Uh, so the main thing there is really increasing the laser power. And that's not something where you just turn up the, the, the knob and turn it to 11. You need to be very careful because there's so much laser power bouncing around inside your detectors. You need to make sure it's controlled properly and you're not pushing the mirrors out of alignment or anything like that. So, um, Hopefully, as we increase that sensitivity, um, we will be able to see more sources, be able to see further out into the universe, and that will help us build up a, a larger collection of observations. We will also be joined by a Japanese detector, Kagura, which is similar in design, um, but has some extra cool features. Um, it's cryogenically cooled, in fact, so it is, it is very cold and it's, it's underground, which should help, in particular, see the low-mass signals, so see the very massive black holes. Um, so that's coming up over the next few years. Um, it should, should be around about a year's time before we're observing again and then we'll have a sequence of observing runs and further work where we will collect hopefully hundreds, maybe thousands of gravitational wave detections. Looking further into the future, there is a space-based space gravitational wave mission called LISA. This is a European Space Agency-led mission, NASA as a junior partner. Um, this will launch 2034, if all goes according to plan. And this will basically be a giant um, triangle of, of satellites. And space, one of the advantages of being in space is that you don't need to build long arms, which have vacuum inside to bounce your lasers up and down. You can just have lasers out of space. And LISA will see much lower frequency gravitational waves. So it will actually be able to see the mergers of the supermassive black holes of about a million times the mass of our sun, as well as sort of fill in the gap of a, you know, um, a few tens of thousands, maybe down to a few thousands solar mass mergers. So putting together the LISA observations with our LIGO, Virgo and Kagura observations will hopefully tell us more about what's going on in the middle between our known stellar mass black holes and supermassive black holes. That's fabulous. That's some really, really exciting stuff. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. It was great talking with you. Oh, thank you very much.
Yeah, and that was uh, Dr. Christopher Berry, astrophysicist at Northwestern University and the University of Glasgow. Join us each week on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion as we bring space and astronomy news together with groundbreaking scientists directly to listeners and viewers around the world. We depend on support from viewers like you. To help support this program with a one-time donation or a paid subscription starting at just 99 cents a month, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support. We are also designing a new virtual classroom, providing viewers a chance to learn more about space and astronomy in a highly interactive, media-rich environment. Search for The Cosmic Companion on Kickstarter or Indiegogo to learn more. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your wonder alive. If you enjoyed this episode of Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, please download and share the episode on YouTube, Facebook video, or on any major podcast provider. For more details on space and astronomy news, please visit thecosmiccompanion.com or thecosmiccompanion.net. 